Green Chili Adventure Gear makes American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems that'll turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage, any bag you have into motorcycle luggage. GreenChiliADV.com. Maybe you haven't heard about it. Maybe it's you. But some motorcyclists out there are riding the dark side, and they love it. While others are saying it's a recipe for disaster. Well, today we get an expert for the final say on riding the dark side. But first, we're going to have a look at some comms that may change your ride, and one in particular that's likely to change the way all comms are made in the future. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Hi, I'm Sam Manning. I'm and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Products is where the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcyclists comes from. It's called the Cycle Pump, made in the USA, has lifetime warranty. They also distribute the Google Tech filters for North America. The website, cyclepump.com. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts online, shipping to your door from maxbmw.com. You also can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, a free newsletter, maxbmw.com. Well, we're going to talk about Cardo communicators, but before we get going on this, I just wanted to say something about product reviews. We don't get paid for product reviews. It's not a paid placement. Usually the manufacturer sends us something to try out. We take it, we try it, I use it um, without much of a time frame, and absolutely no promises of coverage or what we're going to say about it. Now, here's why. Because our goal right from the start has been to produce content for you, good content for you. That's my motivation as a host. So I'm not obligated in any way to say anything other than what I feel about the products I test. Um, Now, with that, I keep in mind that we're all different. We all ride different. So something that I love, you know, may not be your thing, maybe not for your style of riding. Um, But if it's something that is a a functionality thing that's going to affect everyone, for instance, let's say it was a phone holder that slips your phone out on rough roads, well, that doesn't cut it. So in my mind, you know, I have no problem saying that. And in fact, I probably just wouldn't waste your time or mine on it. I just tell the company that I'm not doing anything with it. I tell them why and then send the product back to them. Now, um, today we're, we're going to talk about comms, the Cardo comms in particular. They've sent us two comms to try out. One was a free comm 4 plus. The other one is the Pack Talk Bold. Now, right away with this, I got to tell you, I don't use all the functions on these comms or any comms for that matter. I, I just think there's way too many features on these things for me anyway. In, in my mind, the comm is, is good to add some functionality to my ride, but I don't want my ride to be about the comm unit and all the different things that it can do and It's just, it's too much. If you ever looked at a manual for one of these things, they can be kind of overwhelming when you look at all the features on it. Now, I know all riders don't necessarily like comms. I respect that. But for most of us, there's some incredible things that comms allow us to do. And in most cases, I think that they actually add to our safety when we're riding. The features that I like to use with comms are fairly straightforward. And here they are. Number one is playing music. I enjoy listening to music when I ride, not all the time, but a lot of the time, both on and off-road. 
And in the past few years, I've been using my phone as an MP3 player. So I have my phone connected to my helmet speakers. That's something I really enjoy. Um, number two, telephone. Because I like to ride as much as I can, having the phone connected to my helmet speakers allows me to get out for a ride every now and then and anytime I can, daily if I can do it. And I don't feel like I've completely abandoned Elizabeth at home or at work on work days. Um, often I'll just go out for a few hours and hit the back roads or, or run some trails. And it's nice to be able to get that call when I'm within cell range just to deal with whatever. It doesn't happen all that much, but it's quite convenient when it does. Not a deal breaker, but convenient. Number three, radio, same as music. Uh, I sometimes like the radio. Uh, I'm not a deal breaker again, but it's nice to occasionally use when I get tired of my playlist or if I want to hear some local talk from the area that I'm in. Now, number four, and although I don't use this all that often, when I do, I think it's one of the most important features of any comm unit, and that's communicating. Go figure. To be able to talk directly to another rider or your pillion, that adds to my ride. And in, in fact, I think this is one of those, those uh, issues or one of those times where the comm can add to your safety with a ride. For instance, if you um, were a lead rider and you spot a road hazard, you can warn the riders behind you, maybe a vehicle or, or a hole in the road or whatever the case is. Or maybe your pillion, instead of trying to get your attention by poking you in the side or tapping your shoulder, which can be dangerously distracting if you're trying to swing your head around to see some sort of sign language, they just speak. And, when, and these modern comms are digital, so they're crystal clear, full duplex, um, which means that you, you can talk over one another. Full, full duplex means you can talk and listen at the same time. And that's really important because if it was a radio, you'd have to press your button, talk, and the, and the person that's listening has to wait till you're done. They have no way to talk to you until you let go of that button. With full duplex, you can both talk at the same time. So if one's speaking, the other one says, hey, watch the hole on the left uh, in the road you're going to hear that over that. That's very important. And I'm sure you've had things like this happen if you've ever ridden with another rider. Uh, they pull over, you don't know what's happening, so then you find yourself looking for a place to do a U-turn when you could have just asked them on the comm and then just kept going or maybe found a good spot to pull over and wait. Uh, riding with a group on a dusty back road, this is really important. It's easy to alert the riders behind you that a logging truck is coming that they may miss or may not see until it gets much closer to them because there's so much dust. It also allows you to spread out so that you're not sucking up the dust from the rear wheel of the bike in front of you. You can back off some because you don't, you're not worried about losing them. They're going to tell you, I'm turning left on this next road. It's called this. Um, and then you can follow along and you're not so dangerously close. Uh, or a car crossing or even a deer on the side of the road. You know, you point it out. It brings kind of everyone into the same helmet. More eyes, higher degree of safety in my mind. Now, there's always limitations with these sort of things, some of which are range, which will vary with terrain and obstacles like buildings and things like that. And that's just, that's how the world works right now. Another can be pairing the units together. If you're using a different comm unit than your buddy, maybe a different manufacturer, oh man, it can sometimes be a real pain in the butt to get these things to pair together. Not always, but sometimes. So what I suggest to you, if you're looking at getting a comm, is carry your manual with you or at least have a, a PDF version stored on your phone so you can look at it, it will save you a lot of frustration on the road. And another can be group riding with um, normal Bluetooth systems. If you set up a group of riders, they actually need to stay in order, riding in order. In other words, number one rider, two, three, four, that sort of thing, to keep the chain linked together uh, because each unit sort of acts as a relay to the next unit in line. Anyway, um, it can be problematic. But with one of the units that we're going to talk about today, 
that problem is totally cured with Cardo's uh, DMC technology. It's, it's just incredible. Very impressive for groups up to 15 comm units. So if you ever ride in groups or you ever plan to ride in groups, maybe go to a rally or something, this could be something uh, to consider. Anyway, we're going to get to that in a bit. Now, I've used a number of different comms over the past few years, but these were my first Cardo units that I've used, the uh, Freecom 4 Plus and the Cardo Packtalk Bold. Both these units operate roughly the same way as the other as far as their features goes, but they have different controls, the buttons and the control wheel. The, the Freecom 4 Plus has a dial on it, a rotary dial, which is for a lot of functions, and the Packtalk Bold uses a roller bar. They're fairly close to being the same thing. The one thing I do find with a dial with my my jacket that I'm wearing, I wear a Darien jacket from Aero Stitch. It's got a stiff collar on it. I find when I tilt my head over or if I'm I'm in rough stuff off-road with the Freecom 4 Plus will sometimes hit the, the uh, collar and the dial will turn. It'll adjust my volume or something. So that can be somewhat mildly annoying, but not really a big deal. Mainly, it just presses the button and makes a beep sound. The PackDoc Bold doesn't do that because it's got a roller bar. Now, there's a few things that really impressed me with these units, and one thing really sold me on them, but I'm going to come back to that later. Jamie Cheek is the VP of sales at Cardo. He's been with the company since the very beginning. He's also a rider. Jamie, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you so much, Jim. I appreciate it. Hey, before we get into to talking about Cardo, you're a motorcyclist as well. Absolutely. What, what do you ride? I, I have several, several bikes. I've got a uh, Kawasaki for the dirt and I have a Harley uh, Street Glide for riding with the wife and enjoying the scenery. And then I have also, I just picked up recently one of those uh, Ducati Scramblers and that is quickly becoming my favorite bike. Oh. That bike is really, really fun. Yeah, that is a great looking bike. And I just, uh, I love that. that is one that, that I'm seriously interested in. Um, I'm still waiting for the lottery to come in, but as soon as it comes in, <laughs> I, I am rushing right out to get that bike. I had an opportunity, somebody offered to, to let me ride it, but it was so brand new and shiny. There's just no way I would do it. The only way to do it is go beat it up. That bike yeah. is such a, such a, a versatile bike. You can go off road on it. I mean, whatever, it doesn't matter. Are, are you riding that in the dirt? Yeah, it's the uh, desert sled version. Mm. So it's the one with the big suspension and you can just take it on trails on the street. It's just so versatile. It's so nice. And the power is so friendly. You're also a racer. Absolutely. How long have you been racing? Man, I don't want to tell my age, but uh, off and on for, for over 20 years. Oh, so you're over 20 then. Oh, absolutely. A little bit. <laughs> so, and what are you, what are you racing? Uh, right now, I have a 2019 uh, Kawasaki KX450. Hmm. So, you, so you're you're racing dirt. Yes, correct. Right. So, is is that a prerequisite for working for Cardo? Do they only hire people that are is into <laughs> motorcycles? You know what? It is a is a prerequisite uh, when you do work for the company in the United States. We and the North American side, anyway. I, I like my sales guides. They all ride. Uh, the customer service service team here, they all ride. They, you know, it's, it's important to me that, that when you're selling a product and when you're talking to consumers about a product that not only you, you can put yourself in their position, you've experienced it. You can say, yeah, you know what? I, I have one around that ridge in the corner up there. My buddy be in front of me and experienced this, the same thing you are. So it, there's something to relate to there. And I think that's very important just rather than just a person going, hey, how can I help you? 
uh, I don't, I don't know. You know, they, they know when they're a rider, you just connect when you're on two wheels and you have been. Yeah. Yeah. You, you sort of speak a different language. Hey, as far as Cardo goes, and you must run into this all the time. As far as Cardo goes as a company and as far as motorcycle comms, how do you see it standing out from the competition? What is it that makes Cardo different in your mind? Well, from day one, you know, we always invent our own technology. So we don't try to reverse engineer anyone's technology in the industry or outside the industry. We write our own technology. We, you know, we've been the first to market with a lot of things over the years, going way back, you know, the first to bring the FM radio, the first to bring Bluetooth bike to bike back in like 2007. We were the first in the industry to do uh, music sharing. We were the first in the industry to our latest in 2015. You know, we, we developed the mesh network which is in our, our superior product, the, the Pack Talk Bold, JBL. And then, you know, things like that set us apart because we, we do it right the first time. We won't release a product until it works, until we've put it through our tests and we feel comfortable that what we're delivering to the consumer is what we use on a, on a daily basis and, and it works. The end, end result has to be the best. The, the the products that I've had a chance to try was the Freecom 4 Plus and the PackTalk Bold, both of them having the, I, I guess all of the products now have the um, the DSP in them now, so you have a natural voice command. Right. Well, the Freecom 4 Plus and the PackTalk Bold, they do have the natural voice. A lot of consumers get the term natural voice and advanced speech uh, you know mixed up a little bit, like the Freecom 1 and the Freecom 2 Plus. They have advanced speech, but what that still means is you actually have to reach up to your unit and push like the phone icon button in to give a command after your phone wakes up versus natural voice, which is starts on the Freecom 4 Plus. It's naturally talking to your unit like, hey, Cardo, volume up. There's no button to initiate it. So it does give you from the sense of uh, – safety, you don't have to have your hands off the handlebars. You just basically, you know, hey, Cardo volume up or hey, Cardo music on or hey, Cardo next track. Hey, Cardo battery status. If you're going on a long trip, you just want to know how much battery is left in your Cardo. This is what really impressed me most with the unit right off the bat was actually the, the, the features that I'm using most or the commands that I'm using most are volume up and down. I mean, those are really common. The, the ones I find myself saying over and over again, because it's just so handy not to have to reach up and roll the dial, do whatever it takes to get the volume up and down. And I, and I found that that really sort of took me, it, it's, um, you know, from the other units that I've used, this unit has become sort of a hands-off unit for me. Uh, the other units I've used, I've always, you know, had to deal with the wheel, et cetera. And I didn't think it was a problem, but it's a whole new world when I can do everything with my voice with this. So this DSP system that you have, the digital signal processor that you've, you've this is a piece of hardware that you've installed in these units. It, it is. We usually use the term natural voice operation because it's much easier and a lot of people don't understand the other terminology. So it's really natural voice operation. Right. So and that's been since what, 2018? Yes, we launched that on the Pack Talk Bolts. And is that on all the products now? It is not. It is on the Freecom 4 Plus and the Pack Talk Bold and Pack Talk Slim. OK. And, and because it's hardware, there's no way to upgrade the older versions. Correct. The Freecom 1 Plus and the Freecom 2 Plus will not have natural voice. They will have advanced speech, again, where you have to initiate the button. I want to talk a little bit about range, um, because mm -hmm. I know on your your website you claim that you have almost twice the distance of the competition. I didn't get a chance to try this out, to test this accurately, because I really think you got to be a little scientific to set this up. But why would you get twice the range of the competition? 
You know, I think, again, I think it's because we create and we test our stuff in house and we really put it through a lot of tests. And, and when we say twice the range of our competition, that's not only from our testing. If you go to online forums and start looking at feedback from actual tests of bike to bike range, you'll find that actually in a lot of cases, ours get more than what we solicit and our competitors get less than what they solicit. So we're pretty modest about our range. It will do in many cases more than what we solicit. Because a lot of times with any kind of communications, you look up um, uh, FRS radios, for instance, you know, the small handheld radios, they exaggerate something fierce. They'll tell you they're going to get 45 miles of distance, but it's a theoretical thing from a tower to a, to a remote point with no obstacles in between. Obviously, on the road, things are completely different. And of course, you get into any twisties or you get into uh, a bunch of buildings around, all of that's going to affect. So when, you, when you're talking about the, you're the difference between the competition, do you actually set it up? Do you get a competitor's rig and say, okay, this is our, our sign setup, this is how we're doing it? Or do you say, this is our range, this is what they're claiming is their range? No, we're, you know, we believe in also, you know, I need to learn how my competitor systems work. And because I can't give, I can't give information that's not good when I'm out in the sales field talking about my products or when I'm talking to consumers, I need to be able to say, yeah, you know what, I did test that. And this is what I found on a personal level or one of my, or one of the guys that works for me. And, and those tests we've done are done by us with their products. And we're fair and we'll tell you what, you know, what, what range they do get and, and, and we won't, you know, make a story up about it. I think people found about Cardo. That's one thing that we, we are is pretty honest. And uh, we found from our test that our range is a lot better than, than our competitor. Now, what about the JBL sound? I mean, I, I know JBL. Mm-hmm. I've had JBL stuff for years. It's really, I, I think, great quality stuff. Why would you go with JBL sound for your units? You know, no one, no one in this category is is approached a, a speaker manufacturer and thought about the sound experience of a product. But when you when you're a, a rider or a consumer out there riding and, and you want to have music in your helmet, people are always, you know, music. They want to listen to music. And uh, so, you know, there's a gentleman that works for us by the name of Dan Danny Modi, our VP of uh, Global Marketing. He he had this this uh, ideal to to go approach Harmon Carden, and he did and. Uh, it took off, and basically, they actually came up with some platforms on the backside of our app that allows the user to choose their experience of what sound preference they like, depending on if you know if they listen to to Celine Dion or if they listen to heavy metal or if they just listen to a podcast. They can adjust those on three different settings and and have that experience that JBL theirself has tuned. It's kind of like taking a stock motor and putting a tuner on it. They tune that motor to run better, and our speakers are tuned really well to work with JBL, and the partnership's been great. Is it JBL making the speakers, or do you guys make the speakers and they make the software for it? We actually make the speaker, and the, and most people aren't aware that speakers are driven by good software. And if you have good software on a good speaker, you'll have a great result. Yeah, the reason I ask about it is because it, like to me, it's an added expense. Like looking at it from a, a business perspective, you know, t- there's got to be a a, um, a serious reason, a, a real advantageous reason to bring in something that's going to cost you money because you could simply just put your own speakers in your own software, driving those speakers, and go ahead with it. But I got to say, the sound is really, really impressive with these. You know, I agree with you there, and and the reason we did that is because we're a, we're a calm, you know, we're a calm company. We're not a, a music company. Well, I not take it to the people that, that are the company that, that their professional side of the business is speaker sound. So that's why we did that. It's important to us to have a good sound and have, you know, and, and you had 
you had to go that route. We can get a good speaker and, and a decent sound, but we wanted to take it the extra mile. Why the um, the difference between the Freecom 4 and the PacTalk Bold as far as the jog dial or the, 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 the roller on it that you're using? Why is there a complete change in the way that it's set up? Because the Freecom 4, as you know, it has a dial mounted vertically down at the bottom of the unit where you roll it, just like a regular volume dial. Whereas the PacTalk Bold has a sort of a bar that's in the middle of the unit that you put your thumb on and you roll back and forth. Right. And it was just a, uh, it was more of a refresh to when we wanted to refresh the Freecom 4 to the Freecom 4 Plus and give it the natural voice and give it the JBL sound experience and wanted to put a roller wheel for ease of use because people had requested that. We didn't want to put the large wheel like on the Pack Talk because obviously it's a lot larger and would take take much more dedication to change a lot of the internal board to do it that way. So we did not go that route with it and put the smaller wheel for the sleeper, smaller design to, can, to keep the Freecom 4 Plus the size it is. Well, what, what's basically the difference between the Freecom 4 Plus and the PacTalk Bold? Because there's a, a big size difference, as you just mentioned there. The PacTalk Bold is considerably larger. Well, the PacTalk Bold JBL has the DMC technology, which is our dynamic mesh communication. And the Freecom 4 Plus is still just a Bluetooth intercom. Okay, so that, that's basically the difference between the two. Okay, so that, that brings Correct. us to the, the next thing we want to talk about. So here's the thing with, with Bluetooth technology as far as what I've experienced up till now. If you're connecting a group, it's a little bit cumbersome. You can probably explain this better than me because you have to keep your group in line once you set it up. Yes, you know, it, a great analogy that a man came up with one time. When you, you know, old school Christmas lights, when you take one of those lights out of them, the lights behind them don't work anymore. Mm, You've disrupted yeah. the current. And Bluetooth technology, when you're riding down the roads, the same. For one, you're, you're limited in how many you can hook up to it. So, for instance, the Freecom 4 Plus will do four riders. You have to remember, though, the way you pair those is the chain you have to ride down the road in. You can switch switch positions a little bit, but if if you're riding in front of me and then and then – a guy named Jeremy's riding in front of you and there's only three of us. If you drop behind me just five or 10 yards, we're fine. I can still talk to Jeremy. But if you drop off and say, hey, guys, I'm going to go to the store. I'll catch up with you in a minute. You were my chain to Jeremy. So I could not talk to him any longer because I was talking to him through you. So unless we physically pulled over and repaired our units to create a new group, you know, in Bluetooth, I wouldn't be able to talk to him. Right, which makes it just a huge pain in the butt. And the reason for this is, is because it's range, isn't it? You want to be able to extend yep. the range from one rider to the next. So you set up this chain and the communication goes from that first one to the second node to the second no or third node, rather to the fourth node. And this is the way the chain of, of command goes in. And like you said, once you break that, you've lost it. So it, it's sort of a cumbersome, almost like I hate to say this, but almost useless way to do something a, a lot of times because it just adds so much confusion when you're having to repair your units. But that's why you guys have come out with this dynamic mesh communication. Just explain that. So the, so the limitations, obviously, of Bluetooth is as we just went over. So we went to the drawing board and my CEO, you know, he's really, really trying to figure it out back in 2013. He was like, there's got to be another solution, got to be another solution. And, and everybody put their heads together and, and came up with this great dynamic mesh communication. And what that allowed riders to do was not only to talk immediately like you and I are talking, because another drawback with, with Bluetooth is you have to activate the mic to talk and there's a delay in speech. So you could potentially have an accident with mesh network. 
not only it gives you the, the versatility of, of switching positions in a group, it, it gives you open communication like you and I are talking now. So if there's me, you, and Jeremy, and, and even up to 15 guys riding together, we can switch positions, enter and leave the group. It self-heals immediately. So there's no delay. And, and you can even take it as far as if we created one group of, of 15 riders and we come to, to three T's in the road – well, all you know, five could go each direction and and never disrupt anything. Them five continue to talk. Those five continue to talk, and then when you meet back up, you know, five miles down the road, all fifteen, again. So it's really, really, uh, it's so robust. You just create it, and your group is remembered. Yeah, I like I like the term self healing. That really explains it. You know, you, you drop out and you come back in, and you're you're fine. You're good to go, and it'll go up to five miles, which is, I think, eight. Eight kilometers. Yes, that sounds right. Um, eight kilometers. So it's a and fair that's distance. When you have, and that's when you have 15 people, the max. When you have it maxed out, it will stretch out to five miles. Right. So if you're doing any sort of event, this is obviously what you want to do. If you're if you're getting together with, a, I mean, if you think about even just four riders, that's pretty tough to hold a position for four riders using the old Bluetooth system. You know, it really is. I find more and more people now using the four rider solution for like, you know, all the UTVs now that are coming out with just four for a family of four. Uh, They don't want to go mesh. They just want to hook four up and they're in the same UTV. So all four of them obviously aren't switching positions. So it works great that way. Mm. But from, you know, even from an entry level Bluetooth standpoint, you know, doing four people, unless you really understand how Bluetooth works riding down the highway, it can it can really confuse you. So people have to do their due diligence before they purchase a product, Bluetooth or mesh. Uh, you're saying this isn't Bluetooth. What exactly is Bluetooth? Bluetooth is is just the uh, the Freecom 4 Plus and the Freecom 2 Plus. So the Freecom 2 Plus allows you to do you know, short range bike to bike entry level up to 500 yards. And then the Freecom 4 Plus allows you to do up to four people bike to bike. So, it, you know, at a 1.2 kilometer range, which, which is about three fourths of a mile. But, but I'm thinking more of technology wise, like, like what is Bluetooth technology compared to DMC technology? Is it a different radio you're using? No, it's actually Bluetooth. We pretty much put Bluetooth on steroids to get that distance. Oh, uh, okay. So, so it's not like you're, you've put in a different radio system or anything like that. You're still using right. Bluetooth, but it's another system working within Bluetooth. Correct. What, what's the, uh, the pop-up antenna for? Is that, is that for the FM radio and communications or just communications? The, the pop-up antenna is actually for the range. You always want those up when you're riding with a group of people because it continuously pings off each other. So if, even if you've got two buddies and you're riding, you know, that pop-up antenna is going to give you more range than having that antenna down. Right. Okay. Now, as, as far as the, um, the the battery goes, I found the battery just last all day. No problem. But as a matter of fact, several days. I, I think you have a, a talk time of um, 13 hours. Correct. And that's continuous. And if you can find somebody that can talk 13 hours continuous, <laughs> that's a that's a strong person. <laughs> so and also the um, I, I think it's all cardo units are, are waterproof. Am I wrong with that? We are. We're the only manufacturer that actually our products are solicited as waterproof, not water resistant. So uh, that's a big deal. Yeah, that surprised me. Have you ever ridden on a motorcycle before and ran into rain? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> like that always, that always floors me. You know, the, the fact that I, I thought everything was waterproof, you know, I would just assume that it was, but, but I know it's not. Um, your waterproof rating, um, for the, for these units, I think is IP 67, which is, um, correct. 
a fairly, uh, well, actually a very high rating uh, of waterproof and dustproof. The, the, the IP67, just to explain that, the, the IP stands for International Protection or Ingress Protection, uh, people refer to it. But that first digit, the six, that talks about solid particle protection, in other words, dust protection in our case with it. And I think they... I think that test for number six is up to eight hours of, of dust protection. And Correct. seven is the immersion protection. And that goes beyond, that's not just splash protection. Um, that's uh, submerged, I think, to a, for a meter up to 30 minutes, I believe. Yeah. And, and, and you know, if you catch us at some shows, uh, we actually submerge units in water and fish tanks. Oh, and we wow. let them blink the entire show to let people sh- see that, that they are. You can submerge. Not that someone's going to submerge these, but if you had, you know, they are waterproof, and that pretty much tells the story. Jumping back, the last thing that I want to talk about, we talked about the natural voice, but what I discovered with this is you can also use Siri if you've got a, an Apple iPhone, or you can use your Google yes. voice commands right through the unit. Absolutely. When, when, you, when you give a command like, okay, Google, your Cardo is just now an extension of your phone. So anything you have in that phone you can control by speech again with not pushing buttons and people, you know, it's, it's crazy. All the shows I work, people, they don't get it until you explain it. It's just your phone. You're just extended. Now your phone's in your helmet. So when you have it mounted on your bar and and so many people nowadays have it mounted on their bars because of, you know, the GPS maps and all that, you're just, that's just an extension. You control everything on that phone by speech, just by saying, okay, Google. And when the phone wakes up, say, you know, Hey, play Pandora or, Hey, Amazon, ship a package to my house or, or whatever you want to do through that. And it's just an extension and it's easy. Yeah. And I really think that's really important for motorcycling. You know, you keep your hands on the bars, you keep in control and talk to your unit. Same thing with answering the phone. You can answer the phone by uh, with your voice or you can refuse the call with your voice. Uh, there, there's tons of commands on here. And, yes. and, and and it's not just the commands, there's tons of features I find on this type of thing. And for me, I know some people may like it. For me, I don't use all the features, but the, the core features of these units work extremely well. Yeah, the core, you know, is basically from from a consumer aspect, you you got three things. People want to use the phone and be simple. They want to use natural voice and they want a good sound experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's from majority of people. That's that's all they want to do. Right. And and just to wrap things up here, you have optional. These things come with 40 millimeter speakers. Is that bigger Correct. than your, your competition? It's about the same size. It's a 40 millimeter uh speaker that comes standard throughout our entire lineup. Right. Okay. And you have an optional 45 millimeter speaker that you can get, um, which I don't think is very expensive. Why would you put a a larger speaker in? The 45 millimeter speaker is a, is an audio set, uh, accessory. We started selling it. It's powered by JBL. So it's a five millimeter larger than the current 40. And for those guys who, who are music guys, you know, that really want the, the best they can get in music sound, they opt to go the 45 millimeter audio set range with us because that gives them the best music experience inside their helmet. Well, from my experience with the units, um, the natural voice uh, commands, the the fact that you have volume up and volume down and the call answer, that to me is, is a deal breaker. I absolutely love it. Uh, of course, the, the waterproof. But the other thing was the audio quality. So, I mean, I, I think you've done a fantastic job on this. Jamie, thank you very much. Great to have you on. No problem. Thank you, Jim. Looking forward to talking to you soon. That was Jamie Cheek, the Vice President of Sales at Cardo. Now, just to recap, 
the units that we tried were the Freecom 4 Plus and the Pack Talk Bold. Now, I was very impressed with both units. I love the mesh feature or DMC for connecting with other riders. It's just a no-brainer. It works great. But what has really kept this unit on my helmet still is their natural voice operation. Now, other comms I've tried have something similar, but this has the ability to start and stop music, answer or deny phone calls. That's really important. But to raise and lower the volume just by telling Cardo to do it, you just say, Cardo, lower the volume, and it does it a notch. You say it again, does another notch. Or mute audio, and it does it immediately, is a stunning feature that allows me to keep my hands where they should be, riding on the road, riding off-road, pulling up to a toll or a ferry booth, just no messing around. I just tell it to lower the volume, mute, or stop playing, and it does it every time. I mean, I am really impressed with how well it recognizes my voice through my noisy helmet, with my visor open, with my visor closed, uh, with rain, with other noise around. It's just been a very responsive and accurate system. So I found that really impressive, and that keeps it on my helmet. I I, I like riding with this thing because I don't. I just don't touch the unit. As a matter of fact, this is the one unit that I've tried where I really haven't touched the buttons very much. I haven't messed around with them very much because I don't have to. I'm just using my voice to do it. So very impressive. The Freecom 4 Plus and the Pack Talk Bold, I think, are both excellent units that would add to anyone's ride. Obviously, it's the Pack Talk Bold uh, that has the DMC, the mesh system. So if that's what you're into, that's what you'd want to look at. going to take a two-minute break to thank sponsors that help make this episode possible for you. But when we come back, we're looking at those who ride on the dark side. Stay with us. Lighting is not just about seeing down the road. It's also about being seen. So it's kind of a win-win. When I get on tight, curvy roads, I've got some auxiliary lights on my bike. And I often have those on because I see so many drivers coming the other way on blind corners, riding the center line, or even sometimes over the center line. And for me, the quicker they see me, the better. The good folks at Cyclops Adventure Sports are all about high-quality lighting. It's what they do. It's what they've built their company on. Um, I ride with one of their tire pressure monitor systems uh, that we had on the show a while back, and I just love the product. As you know, we had on that episode, we had the owner, Daryl Van Neuenhaus. He was on and talking about it. It's a family business. And now they make lights for racers, snow bikes, even bicycles. I mean, they've got a ton of lights on here. They have plug and play LED conversion lights for your bike. So that way you get rid of the incandescent light. And there's a number of gains there. Um, one is that the, the current draw, because the current draw of an incandescent light is, is huge compared to an LED light. The other one is longevity. The LEDs seem to last forever compared to incandescent. There's so many advantages, but most importantly, bright instant on you know you flash your high beams on an led light it is on in a flash and it's and it's um it's sort of arresting when you see it coming towards you and you see a flash like that rather than that slow dim up of an incandescent bulb anyway drop by their website and have a look there's a whole ton of things to look at so you spend a few minutes looking through it cyclopsadventuresports.com and anytime you're dealing with them make sure you tell them that you heard them here on adventure rider radio again cyclopsadventuresports.com
You know, I'm just amazed at how many knockoff parts and accessories are available through online sales. Not long ago, I read about a hydro generating plant that purchased some massive bearings for uh, the main shaft of a generator in, in this plant they're working on. But anyway, they, they bought what they thought were name brands at uh, name brand bearings at a discount seller. But when they had trouble fitting the bearings into place, they contacted the company and then they found out they were knockoffs. In my mind, no savings is worth buying an inferior part and then riding my bike as if I counted on them. And that's why when it comes to foot pegs, I depend on American-made top manufacturing and design of IMS products. They've been making parts for racers since 1976. And in all that time, IMS has been run by ex-racers and motorcycle enthusiasts because it's those people that end up bringing their love of the sport and their dedication and enthusiasm and attention to detail to the products that we want for our bikes. IMS Products has a complete line of foot pegs from their largest ADV-1 and ADV-2 pegs right on down to their more trail-focused core enduro. Um, they're going to have a peg that suits your ride style, I'm sure. And if you don't know what peg is right for you, just contact them and ask. Let, let them tell you the differences between the pegs. It's imsproducts.com. And be sure when you speak to them, email them, whatever, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. Carrie Doherty hit the road uh, about over 12 years ago on her motorcycle. She came back with an idea uh, to show others what she'd learned. She came up with Motobird Adventures. And once that started rolling in 2017, it's just snowballed since then. Um, Carrie says um, the Baja is her second home. She loves showing others her secret places on these trips. Now, she runs Motobird Adventures as motorcycle trips for women, but she isn't leaving the guys out. She says it's about making the trips focused on the ladies. So here's your opportunity to treat a special woman in your life to a trip that you can also be a part of. Motobird Adventures has um, a trip coming up in September, September 10 to 23rd, 2019, called the Baja Dual Sport 14-Day Tour. And it's an opportunity to ride with your wife, your daughter, or whatever female rider you want to take with you. Or if you're a female, um, you can either go by yourself or take your significant other. Now, I saw that Carrie's uh, July tour is sold out, so I don't think you want to wait on this. Drop by her website, motobirdadventures.com. Have a look, book your trip. And, and don't forget to mention that you heard her here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's motobirdadventures.com. they call it riding the dark side. It involves really messing with the design of the motorcycle, but advocates swear by it, saying it saves them money and works like a dream, whereas detractors warn of the potentially lethal results from riding the dark side. Now, a few episodes ago, this was just mentioned briefly, and we got a load of email about it. One of the emails we got from was from a listener named Eric, who said uh, in his email, the thread on advrider.com has lit up over Mr. Tennant's short comments about this subject. That's about riding on the dark side. Um, he was suggesting that maybe we should do a follow-up on it, which we have convinced by all the people that um, sort of responded to just a, a small comment at the end of that episode. Now, what is riding the dark side? Well, we're going to jump right into that now with this guy. Okay, sure. Uh, my name's TJ Tennant. I am a forensic scientist, a former executive at Bridgestone Firestone, uh, in, in charge of motorcycle and passenger and light truck and government products. 
for the engineering department. And now I run a company called Tenant and Associates, and we teach fleets uh, how to limit liability. We train law enforcement in uh, tire forensics and analysis. We certify emergency vehicle technicians, and we are experts at uh, tire failure in the courtroom. TJ, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. I am excited to be back. You know, I got so many emails and people contacted me after the last time. I was like, wow, man. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if Jim knows how big his program is. <laughs> you, you know, I got to say, when, when, when you just did your, your intro there, but you, you sound kind of boring. You know, you're the scientist. You sound like you're all facts and figures, but, but that's not really true, is it? I mean, you're a motorcyclist. Yeah, I am a huge, crazy, insane motorcyclist. I usually tease people uh, and tell them I'm 55 and I've been riding for 56 years because my first ride on a motorcycle is in my mother's womb on the back of my grandfather's Harley and I've been riding ever since. <laughs> but I, I'm still involved very heavily in the motorcycle community. Uh, I'm a motorcycle safety instructor and I'm also a chief motorcycle safety instructor. I instruct the people who instruct regular citizens on how to ride a motorcycle. As a matter of fact, I was on my LinkedIn page or Facebook or something today posting a video and there was a guy that thanked me for teaching him how to ride. He had a picture of his Harley up on the page. Mm, very nice. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you're obviously at it at a, at a very deep level and you're riding all the time. Yes. Uh, as much as I can, uh, I don't get to ride as much as I would like to because uh, I'm busy with tenant and associates. Now we travel a lot. Uh, but I still try to get out and throw a leg across one at any chance that I get or go to any motorcycle events that are close by that I can usually drive or fly to while I'm out and about. But uh, was born and raised with motorcycles. My wife and I have owned over 100 bikes. And uh, I think I'll probably die riding a motorcycle. Hopefully not anytime soon, though. You know, that's that little statement you just made there about not getting to ride as much as you'd like to. I, I think that's sort of like every rider says that. <laughs> you, you can be out riding every day and you can say, well, I don't ride quite as much as I'd like to, but... <laughs> Well, when you when you, I think once you get to a certain point, you have other obligations, and yeah, uh, it's important to fulfill those needs so that you have the the ability to go through that fulfillment of writing. Hey, the last time we talked, we at the very end we mentioned or you mentioned the dark side of motorcycle tires, what you referred to as the dark side, and you know, and I hadn't heard that term before. I'm, I wasn't aware of it. I'm certainly aware of what it means and what people do, but I was surprised at how many emails we got from people who wanted to know more about this. And and so, I think what we want to start off with is you explaining what is the dark side of motorcycling. The, the dark side is actually a group of motorcyclists who install passenger car tires on the rear of their motorcycle, and they do that so that they get extended mileage out of the motorcycle, of the car tire. Uh, there's also a phrase called double dark side, which is where they install uh, a car tire on the rear of the motorcycle, and they take a rear motorcycle tire, turn it around backwards, and put it on the install it on the front rim. They call that double dark side. <laughs> uh, <laughs> forgive me for laughing, but it's true. 
they actually have their own website and everything, and, and they proclaim that it's as safe as riding with a, motor, uh, a conventional motorcycle tire on the, on the rim, which it is not. Well, well there, there's a lot of people that are into doing this. And like you said, there's a, there's a whole following. They've got websites. I've seen it on forums now. I think everything that I've seen, everything that I've read about so far, has it's all anecdotal. It's all people who have tried it and say that it works great. And, and I guess the main thing they're after is, I guess what we all complain about with motorcycling is that our tires wear out too fast. I think that's their biggest motivation for this. That, yeah, holy solely. It's definitely not safety. I don't think you 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 hear some of them profess that it's just as safe. But out of curiosity, I, I had a friend that rode for a little while, for a short time, uh, on the dark side, and and I asked him, I asked permission to ride his motorcycle because I wanted to try to understand that process a little bit better, and and how it felt, and, and when you're in a straight line, I I didn't really notice uh, any. Thing different. Uh, actually, you had a, a little bit less course correction in a straight line because you're riding flat on that rear tire. But when you had to go into a turn, then it, it, it was a little bit of finesse. And I, 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 just being honest, I was a little uncomfortable getting that tire up on the shoulder to get it through a turn, uh, knowing what I know about tires and compounds and casing and uh, uh, B to flange fitment, it, I just was not comfortable. I couldn't get past what I knew about testing motorcycle tires. And uh, it's just not safe. That it, and actually, there are no motorcycle manufacturers on the planet that endorse that. There are no motorcycle tire or automotive tire manufacturers on the planet who endorse it. And through some of the training that we do at Tenant and Associates with insurance companies and claims adjusters, they are starting to turn. And usually it's a, a single vehicle accident. It's, it's hardly ever a, a multi-vehicle accident. It's usually single in the wet in the turn because uh, once you get up on that shoulder, you've got a very small footprint. It's a very different uh, rubber compound and tread pattern than what's on the motorcycle tire. So you have... Uh, a lower coefficient of friction. And uh, basically, in, in layman's terms, you have less traction. And so on a wet day in a curve is when they will find themselves in a little bit of trouble and go down. So as we are training insurance uh, adjusters and law enforcement reconstructionists, we're making them aware of this particular phenomenon. And I don't want to call it a phenomenon because it seems like it would be rare. And it's, it's actually... Uh, a little more common than I would like being a motorcyclist myself and a tire engineer. Uh, they're starting to turn those claims down for improper application. And the uh, improper application part would be not only the construction of the tire, but the fitment of the tire bead into the rim flange of a motorcycle wheel. If I'm not getting too technical, I hope. Well, well, well let's let's back up before we get into that technical aspect, and I do want to, but I want to go back to sort of the um, the reason behind it and and their defense as far as those people who are riding the dark side or the double dark side. And I remember because what I read was that it really it looks like it started out with a lot of people who are riding heavy cruisers. And it reminded me of something you said the last time I talked to you. You were saying about the older gold wings. Um, what you said was, if you fill up the tank with gas and put yourself on it with a pillion, there's a very good chance that you are at the maximum or possibly beyond the maximum weight 
for the tire on that bike. That that is true. It's not as much today because uh, the Bridgestones, Michelin's, Dunlops of the world, especially on the new uh, Goldwing, which has a bigger tire, and the, it's the the casing and the ability to carry more air, which gives you the ability to carry more load. On the new Goldwing, the new BMW K1600, those kinds of bikes, they've uh, reduced that to almost nil at this point. So it, it still wouldn't be a reason to do that. So they're, almost 100% of their reasoning is mileage. Right, right. But, but let me just jump back, though. So, but that's what some people have used, and it seems to come up a lot because people will tell these stories about their tire failures that they had on their bikes probably because their bikes were overloaded to begin with. And that's caused these tire failures that has them sort of get, at least getting the reason or at least their, their backing for their feeling of, of going and running a car tire on their motorcycle. That, that's part of the reason. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do. Yeah, that would be true, but you're trading one evil for the other. Right. Well, and it turns uh, out that as you start to dig into this, there's a lot of reasons why a car tire doesn't work on a motorcycle. Now, and one of the analogies I read was, you know, somebody had said something about metric sockets and SAE sockets. And sometimes, you know, they're not meant to be interchanged, but there are sometimes, you know, you might use a metric socket on a standard bolt. And that's a different animal altogether than messing with your, your tires, which is your sole connection between you and the road. Yeah, uh, you, you're right. Uh, but it, the difference between a motorcycle rim and a tire rim, and I really should have sent you a diagram that I'll send it to you anyway. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had one so that we could post it. But but yeah, let, let's talk about the rim because the rim is the, the place to start, isn't it? Yes. Uh, the 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 format or uh, the profile of a motorcycle rim is inherently different than the profile of an automobile rim. The rim flange itself isn't as tall as the rim flange on an automobile rim. So with an automobile rim, it is set up to carry a, a bigger load and a much more secure bead lock. Or I don't want to say bead lock in the motorcycle world because there's no bead lock or anything. It, it, it's just set up to fit inside of that flange so that it fits deeper and it uh, fits more secure with the design of the bead on the tire to the rim flange. On a motorcycle, the, the rim flange is shorter. In other words, it's not as tall as the rim flange would be on an automobile rim. And it's set up for the profile of a motorcycle tire, which has a little bit more deflection built in. And what I mean by deflection, uh, if you ever look at a tire that's almost flat and it kind of bows out on the sides, that is deflection. So the deflection that's built into a motorcycle tire is inherently different than an automobile because the motorcycle tire is going to deflect more out, outwardly where the deflection on a car tire, unless it's almost flat, is going to be almost straight up and down. So the rims are set up to accommodate that. And not even getting involved in the safety hump and other things like that in the in the wheels, but riding a, a motorcycle rim with a car tire on it just poses a danger that uh, is more serious than the failure of previously the tires that were on the bigger bikes. And I, you know, I was looking at some of the adjustment data and things like that that we get that I used to get. And I can still get 
And there weren't that many failures out there. There were a lot of overloads and things like that. Most And the failures that did happen didn't necessarily result from riding two up on the motorcycle with a full tank of fuel. Most of those failures came from that in addition to towing a trailer. Hey, sorry, you're, you're talking failures here of motorcycle tires. Yes, yeah, yes. Right. Yes. Uh, thank you for clearing that up. Yeah. Uh, those failures on the on those motorcycle tires, on those motorcycles, uh, came in uh, the fact that they were riding two up with a full, full tank of fuel, and it was uh, already at the threshold of the maximum load-carrying capacity of the tire. And then there was a trailer connected, and I'm not saying anything's right or wrong with towing a trailer. I'm, we're, I'm, I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is the tongue weight and the other physical attributes that come with attaching a trailer to a motorcycle and riding two up. That rim profile that you were talking about, in other words, if you cut a rim in half and looked at the profile, so you would see the edge of the rim and you'd be able to see the cross section rather of where the tire goes on. It's markedly different than a, a car rim if you compare them side by side. And one of the diagrams I looked at, there's a difference where the where the little lip comes up that holds the bead in place widthwise. Yeah. Uh, I think it's 16 millimeters on a bike and 21 on a car, yeah. Yeah. which means that when you put that tire on, the whole profile, it, it just doesn't fit. I mean, it may look like it fits when you see it. Okay, the tire's on the rim, but it doesn't fit. But that wasn't all. There's also the diameter of the rim. The diameter of the rim, uh, there are just a myriad of things. And actually, I used, there's an organization called the Tire and Rim Association. They're located in Akron, Ohio, and they set the specifications for all tires, motorcycle, passenger, light truck, commercial, ag, mining tire, all tires sold in the Americas. And that's from Canada down to through South America. And they also set the specifications for all rims sold in the Americas. And uh, there was a time when I was chairman of the board of that organization, and we actually got a call from someone on the dark side asking us the differences, and we sent them some that person some information, and uh, and I don't remember the the gentleman's name, but uh, he said, "Well, you guys just want to sell us more tires," and of course that's not a sales organization; that is an engineering organization, and it was kind of funny because. the, the fellow then called Bridgestone, who I was an employee of at the time, the engineering manager, and actually got me on the phone and he recognized my voice. He said, didn't I just talk to you? <laughs> I now said, he's yeah. thinking it's a total conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, he was. I mean, he just swore up and down that I had planned it, but he just got me in my office one time and then we actually wrote him an actual document from the Tire and Rim Association. And I'm not an advocate of that because I'm an advocate of safety. And the reason that no one can give, well, they could. If you you wanted 100,000 miles out of a motorcycle tire, the technology to give you that is there today. But the trade-off is contact contact with the pavement and the amount of rolling resistance and friction that you're going to achieve, which would be less with that added mileage. And that goes the same also for an automobile tire when you put that on, not even taking into account the way that the the bead on the passenger and light and light well it's mostly passenger car tire. The passenger car tire fits 
on the flange, which is shorter. And that's what you were meaning when you said the lip of that rim that comes up and curves out a little, that's called a rim flange. The way that that bead fits in that lower flange, which is on the motorcycle tire, is a problem. And then one of the other problems that you have is how much air pressure do you put in that tire to make it do what you need it to do to behave similarly to a motorcycle tire? So most of the time, the amount of pressure that they put in there, which is between 20 and 30 pounds, and that, that tire is more than capable of carrying that motorcycle at 20 or 30 pounds. But the problem is, structurally, that tire isn't designed to have less than 35 PSI in it. So from a structural standpoint, you're also damaging the structure of the tire itself by having less air pressure than that tire is designed to have in it. So there's just a myriad of reasons to not do that. When we're talking about the rim and how it doesn't fit into the rim and, and we're talking about the bead lock and all these little things, let, let's get down to brass tacks. What can happen? I mean, so it doesn't fit. Who cares? If you can ride it and, and everything's fine, that's great. But what can happen? What can go wrong here? Oh, easily that, that bead on the tire can slip out of uh, that rim flange. And uh, to be, if I'm honest, to not only the Darksiders, but your other listeners, do we have any evidence of that happening? No, because like I said, usually they're singular vehicle accidents and they're not recorded as so because before uh, the claims adjusters were not educated on the differences of a motorcycle tire on uh I mean, a, a passenger car tire on a motorcycle rim. Now that we're starting to educate them and they know to look for those kinds of things on motorcycles, now we're, they're starting to collect the data more. Because that was one of the things that, and rightfully, the, the dark siders were saying, well, there's no evidence of that happening. Well, there was no evidence because that very few people other than a rider is aware of motorcycle culture. And most claims adjusters didn't ride, so they had no idea what they were looking at. They thought they were looking at a motorcycle tire, maybe a different type of tire like you'd find on a, on a Can-Am uh, slingshot or something like that, which also, by the way, is not a passenger car tire. It looks very similar, but it's not a passenger car tire. It's, for, it's a special use tire, mm. which, is, which is different than a passenger car tire and or uh, a motorcycle tire. But uh, now that they've been, uh, a lot of them are being educated by some of the guys on my team on what to look for, what anomalies to look for in the motorcycle kingdom. They're starting to collect that data. Okay, so the, the um, it's a possibility that there has been times where, where riders have had a problem, a single vehicle accident, their bike alone, from having a tire roll off the rim because of this lock. And I, I guess the other way to look at it, the way that I sort of look at it is thinking – if there's a rim lock built into the rim, that's part of the manufacturing process. It's obviously there for a reason. <laughs> it is, and that's that's one of the reasons that the minimum requirement of air pressure on a passenger car tire is 35 psi, uh, and they really don't need that much to carry the load of a motorcycle. That's that's the, the, that tire is designed to carry a, you know a, a two ton car, <laughs> not not a, a 950 pound motorcycle. So. The fact that they don't need that much air and there is a problem and the fact that they don't put uh, 35, 40, 45 PSI in those tires is a problem as well, which uh, ultimately could result in the bead of the tire unseating from the motorcycle rim. 
All right, we've got the bead. We looked at the bead. Now let's move up the tire. What other problems are there with the, as we get into the sidewall and the tread? Well, the sidewall is under a lot of duress. Passenger car tires are designed, and I kind of mentioned it earlier, for the, uh, especially in this case, because they've got a small aspect ratio. And let me explain what an aspect ratio is. Uh, say, for instance, you have a 235, 45, 16. The 235 means that's the width of the tire from sidewall to sidewall, not the tread. When the tire is aired up on the rim, and then that next thing, two, the 235, 45, the 45 is the, is the height of the sidewall, and it's the percentage of that first number. So if it's a 235-45, the sidewall is 45% of that 235. And of course, the 15 or 16 would be the rim size, 17 in most cases on a motorcycle. Uh, but that is designed to operate in a uh, vertical operation up and down where a motorcycle tire is de designed to operate at different lean angles so that the thrust angle on the motorcycle tire doesn't affect the contact patch like it would on a passenger car tire. So when you put that passenger car tire on there and you, you're not operating it at 35 or 40 or 50 PSI, then the deflection part of that tire, which is normally right around the shoulder area, actually operates there and the, the range is higher because now you're deflecting from the bead all the way down to a little bit into the belt package, which internally on the tire will start to induce a, a belt edge separation. So what I mean by that is that the belts in the tire will start to uh, lose uh, their adhesion to the tread and or the carcass of the motorcycle tire and could possibly fail. Well, well to understand the, the, the difference between those two, and sorry to interrupt you there, but to understand the difference, the, the tread on the motorcycle tire is much wider as far as the profile than the car tire. Is, is that the a, a correct way to look at it? Yeah, the crown radius, which is the shape of the tread, is actually wider than the shoulders are on a motorcycle tire. Because we lean on our uh, over on the side when we make it's the corner, yet a car does not do that. Exactly. And the way that it's constructed is different. It's a monospiral wind uh, on the carcass and the tread and the belt package. And a lot of times even the, the tread itself. And what I mean by monospiral wind is that those components of a motorcycle tire are wound onto the carcass, just like you would do a fishing line on the reel. Whereas a tire are, uh, are still made and spliced together. A car tire. Yes. So that's the, the, the biggest difference in how they're constructed. Well, why, the, why the difference? Because a motorcycle tire has lean and thrust angles and a car does not. Mm. So when a car goes into a, a turn, you just turn the wheel and basically not really, but basically the, t the tread remains pretty flat on the ground working with the suspension system. Whereas when a motorcycle turns, uh, obviously you, you and your, your, your listeners know this, it, you lean into the turn itself and uh, no matter what lean angle you're at, you still got a very similar percentage of contact patch. Whereas if you, when you put that car tire, when you lean, you actually lift the tread up and have less contact patch. And I've seen videos where they say, hey, it doesn't, they show they have, they have a GoPro or something on the rear and they say, yeah, it doesn't lose that much. 
Actually, it does because the contact points and the stress points on the tire itself are inherently different when you lean that tire over onto the the uh, edge of the tread or, of course, it doesn't go all the way over to the shoulder on a car tire. But now you've got reverse stresses that wouldn't normally take place to that tire and stresses that that tire isn't designed to respond to. And uh, that's where you start to have internal damage to the inside of the tire. And the scary part is it's not something you can see from the outside. It would just happen to the tire. And it's very similar. I don't know if any of your listeners, uh, I'm showing my age a little bit, I guess, were around doing the Ford Firestone fiasco when you had the belt edge separations on the Firestone tires back in the late 90s and the 2000s with the Ford Explorers. And those tires, a lot of those tires experienced a belt edge separation. Uh, but that was due to, similar to this, to uh, Ford lowering the air pressure on those tires from 33 to 26 PSI. And that was right around 20% uh, of the required inflation pressure for the load that it was carrying. So when you put a, a passenger car tire on a motorcycle wheel and you obviously you're going to lean sooner or later, you're artificially inducing what happened with the Ford Explorer uh, situation. Oh, because because with the Ford Explorer being lower pressure, it would roll onto the sidewall on the corner. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So you're inducing those same factors, even though the better nowadays, you're still inducing that belt edge separation artificially on that tire. Another thing that I'd, I'd read about, and maybe you experienced this because you you rode one of these motorcycles that are set up this way, was the fact that if you stop on a, an uneven surface, it's a little bit more difficult to actually keep the bike upright because the bike wants to stay um, uh, sitting perpendicular to the surface of the road. Yeah, it's a little weird. Uh, and, and I found that, that, of course, I'm here in Nashville and, you know, most of the roads are, are are pretty flat. I mean, none of them are at any real angles. But one of the things that I found most dis disconcerting for me was getting it up on that edge. And, you know, it's funny because my buddy who owned the bike and that setup at the time said, oh, you'll get used to it. And uh, I said, man, I don't want to have to get used to something that's unsafe. <laughs> so I, I thought it was interesting that he would put it that way. But here's another problem with that from a legal standpoint is that if you uh, advertise or witness to the fact that this is safe to do and somebody takes you as the expert in that arena, you can be it. Well, probably will be if, if my guys got anything to do with it. But you, you can and or will be introduced as a party in liability. Wow, that's interesting. So you post a video up saying, hey, look, this thing is great. And this is the modification that I do. Um, and it works as good as anything. You could be potentially held liable for it. You can't not could be you can be. Wow. So if you post a video saying this is how to do it, and I've never had any accidents doing this, and it doesn't matter where you've been, if you've been riding for 30 minutes or 30 years that way. And if any way you profess to be the expert, even if you've got a disclaimer on that video or on that article, you are still teaching people to do something that is not 
that is outside of normal application, which is also against the quintessential experts, which would be the the motorcycle manufacturers, the wheel manufacturers, the tire manufacturers, and you're differing from the standards, then yes, you could and can be held liable for that. And the court would consider it misinformation. I'm not saying it is or isn't. I'm just saying from a legal standpoint, that's how it would be looked at. Well, obviously you're saying that not to not to go with the dark side, <laughs> double dark side. I was going to ask you, DJ, I was going to say, well, what's your opinion on this? But that's kind of stupid because I think it's pretty obvious where you stand. You're saying don't do it. But let, so let me ask you this. We, we have to assume that's obviously where you stand. But um, we talked about the Goldwing. You mentioned about the older Goldwing when it was two up with two heavy people and, and a full tank of fuel and it being at the maximum or beyond the maximum uh, weight that that tire is designed to handle. What are the options at that point? Uh, a lot of the motor fa- the tire manufacturers now make an extra load tire that will compensate you uh, a little bit more. Unfortunately, not uh, as much as I would like to because you just don't have enough uh, tire space in there to go to a larger tire, either by rim or by swing arm or something. And I know on the old BMW K1200s, when they had the radial tire on that 160 that was on the rear, they had to move to using a uh, bias ply tire because even the radio tire that was right size would rub against the swing arm, and that's the single-sided swing arm, and eventually fail. So, unfortunately, there's not a lot of options. Uh, you can ride two up safely, but I would what I would always recommend on anything uh, less than the latest generation Goldwing is to run that tire with maximum air pressure to carry that load. If you're carrying a trailer, you definitely want to run it at max PSI. Now, uh, say, for instance, max PSI is 41 or 48 or 49. Running at 50 or 55 will not help you. That will actually uh, put that tire in danger of an impact brake because now you've taken all the spring rate out of that tire, which is actually part of the suspension system. But I would highly recommend, almost demand, uh, that they would run those the rear tire, not necessarily the front, but the rear tire at max air pressure. So whatever that is in that small print on the sidewall when it says this tire will carry X number of pounds at max air pressure, which is this, that's what I would run that, that tire. And also check that air pressure, not just when you go on a long ride, but every month, because every month you're going to lose approximately one PSI of air pressure, it doesn't matter whether it's nitrogen or compressed air out of that tire. And you're also going to lose or gain one PSI per 10 degree drop in temperature or gain one PSI per 10 degree increase in temp- in ambient temperature. You just said bias ply to replace the radial That's in, in some cases. But that's because a bias ply can hold more weight. But do you have the choice of running bias or radial on any bike? Uh, on the K on the old K twelve hundred you do, but on the Goldwing and the uh, uh, some of the other bigger cruisers, some of the Harleys, I would think not uh, on the rear because uh, where a radio will will grow laterally, a bias will grow radially, and what I mean is a radial tire will grow to the sides, and a bias ply tire will grow circumferentially. Oh, that's uh, interesting. So if you're limited yeah. in space, that's where you run into yeah. trouble. Right. right. And, and and also, there will be a significant difference in handling if the bike is designed, believe it or not, not, not necessarily if you're used to riding with a radio tire. If the suspension system is set up and designed for a radio tire, 
uh, I would not recommend installing a bias ply tire in place of. And, you know, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because I found something really interesting that with a lot of the tire manufacturers, they will make both a biased and a radio. And sometimes when the dealer installs the tire, they will have ordered the bias because they didn't pay close enough attention to that B where the R normally is. Or sometimes there's a dash, which is a bias, no belt. And the B is a bias with a belt. Uh, they don't pay attention and they wind up installing a biased instead of a radio tire because the tire will have the same tread pattern, basically the same name, but only in the sourced uh, spec information will they say radial or bias. So to the dealers that are listening out there, please make sure that you don't just look at the name of the tread or tire and the size, but also look at the spec information. Make sure that you're ordering a radial tire when you need a radial tire versus a biased in place of a radial you, tire. You said the R or the B. Where is the R or the B? Uh, when you look at the, the size on the tire, it'll have, for instance, 16070R17. That, that R means radio. If it's a bias, it'll have 16070B17. That means it's a biased tire with a belt. And sometimes, occasionally, you'll have a 16070 dash 17. That dash means it's a bias with no belt. And and the bias flies tend to come up a little bit cheaper. So that's something you, you want to be careful of as well, that when you're shopping, you look at it, it has two listings for the tire that looks identical. One's a biased and it's a little bit cheaper than the radial tire. There's obviously, there's handling characteristics that you're trading off for doing that. Yeah. And so even not just for the dealers, but also for uh, the consumers out there that are listening to your show that order online, they need to also question if there's no spec information available, if there's just a tire, to make sure that that online retailer is sending them the right product. So you want to go out, if you're not sure what you have on your bike, uh, take a look at what's mounted on the motorcycle, check the owner's manual and your, your swing arm placard, because it'll usually say that too, uh, just to make sure that if you bought the bike used, that it didn't accidentally or uh, purposefully get the wrong uh, construction tire was put on 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 that rim. Now, TJ, just before we wrap things up here, I, I wanted to ask you about something we just touched on last time because you made a point of saying it. You mentioned about not using a bias tube in a radial tire. Can you talk about that? Yes. Uh, there's two types of tubes. There is a radial tube and a bias tube. Do you know how rare it is that someone who sells tubes knows the difference? I mean, I just get blank stares. They have no clue, unfortunately. And that's through personal experience uh, through lawsuits with motorcycles that they just did not know. And not only do, uh, in a lot of cases, do the dealers not know, the people selling the tubes don't know, the people installing the tubes don't know. It's it's a little bit shocking uh, that that knowledge does not exist out there. And I'm glad you're saying this on your show because it, I really wish other people who interview me would ask that question because it's really important. And let me explain why you can't do so if basically if you're ordering a tube just get a radio because you can put a radio tube in a bias ply tire or a radio tire if you get a bias ply tube it can only be installed in a bias tire it cannot under any circumstances be installed in the radio tire and here's why because the flex rate or the frequency that a bias ply tube 
flexes, grows, shrinks, moves around inside of the tire is inherently different than the frequency of a radial tire, which will cause friction between the tube and the tire. You can put lube in there. You can put anything you want. It's just going to cause friction, which is going to cause heat, which will eventually cause that tube to fail and then can cause you some issues on the road. What kind of failure are we talking about here? Are we talking about uh, chafing, breakdown? All of the above, yes. Mm. Chafing, breakdown, pinching. Could it be that you would put this tube on and find that you're constantly getting leaks? Uh, you, you hear people talk about that sometimes, can't find the, the issue with it. They're constantly getting leaks. Could it be a heat problem where a, a small line or, or a casting mark or something inside the tire, the casing of the tire, is making a hole in the tube, which otherwise wouldn't happen if they used a correct tube? Yeah, that that's possible as well, unfortunately. Uh, it, it just doesn't work. It flexes at a different speed or rate than the tire would. And that will eventually cause some wear or chafing or maybe even uh, a pinch or fold or something in that tube uh, and cause a failure at that point. When you're installing the, the tube, quite often people will use baby powder as, as a friction reducer between the tube and, and the tire casing itself. I think now the, the tire manufacturers, and correct me if I'm wrong, are saying that not to bother with that. Is that the case or what would you recommend? Some say that if you're comfortable with putting in some type of powder or lube, that's okay, as long as it's not a petroleum type uh, application on there. Uh, but that's more for installation and not so much for the actual uh, usage of the tube inside of the tire later on, because it's just not going to last that long. Oh, I see. As, so, so it's yeah. not it's not going to reduce the friction between the tube and the tire itself when you're going down the road. Yeah, and the, the last time I installed a tube, actually, uh, the the that powdery substance was already administered to the tube when I took it out of the package. So I was a little shocked to see that. I didn't expect that. Mm. Uh, but some manufacturers are actually. Uh, applying some type of substance to assist you in uh, mounting application of that tube inside of the tire. Well, TJ, I want to give you the final say here on, on riding the dark side, and the double dark side. <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> no, don't do it. <laughs> that was so predictable. <laughs> well, there's one other thing that I must talk to you about. I have to, if you have a moment. Yeah. Uh, this last month, we've been involved in lawsuits or as expert witnesses in a, about four lawsuits last month alone involving motorcyclists with brand new tires on the motorcycle. Mm. And we talked a little bit about this last time. There is no uh, silicon or anything like that anymore on motorcycle tires when you get them new. So the purpose of the break-in now, today, when you buy a new tire, is to get used to the new profile. So you're going from a tire that's got a, probably a flat spot in the middle to one that's got a more rounded profile, or even if you ride aggressively, one that's kind of worn on the shoulders compared to a new one that's got a new profile. It is also to scuff up the surface of the tire so that you have more friction. That doesn't mean you can take a Brillo pad or steel mesh brush and scratch it up and then get on it and drag a knee through a turn. Through a turn. That means it needs to go through some heat cycles and other things. But the biggest reason that people are getting into trouble is that the dealers are not discussing the break-in period that the manufacturer of the tire requests the dealer to discuss with the customer. 
So what I want to tell everyone, and you guys won't remember that Pirelli has a 200-mile break-in. Michelin and Bridgestone have 100 kilometers, and uh, Dunlop has 100 miles. So you don't have to remember all that. On the label of every motorcycle tire is the break-in period. So when you purchase a new motorcycle tire, please, because they're just going to throw it in the trash anyway. And most of your listeners won't even see it because the dealer will throw it in the trash before they give the bike back to the owner. And to dealers especially, take that label, give it to the customer, and tell the customer to read that label, and it will tell the customer what the break-in procedure and policy is for that tire for that manufacturer because they're different for each manufacturer because if you don't follow those if the dealer does not discuss that with the customer and does not at a minimum give the customer the label and i used to tell them just stick the label on the back of the uh, receipt and let the customer go and they've got the label then uh, the dealer himself or herself will be open to lawsuit and we have not lost a single one of those cases and they're coming from attorneys they're coming from insurance claims people because like i said they're starting to be become more educated with motorcycle culture and what my group does is assist them in educating them about things like that so when you buy a new tire please ask for that label or at least take a picture of a similar tire that's still got the label on it within that shop and read that break-in, really important, before you head off on that motorcycle. Because they will talk about braking, they will talk about maneuverability, and obviously acceleration on that tire and how long before you can, are able to do those things on that new tire. I'm assuming that the difference between the break-in time, you're saying from one manufacturer said Pirelli was 200 and some others were, were much less. Um, I'm assuming the difference is just whatever they feel comfortable with. Like they've done their own calculations and, and come up with uh, something that they want to be covered for, I guess. Yeah, you're exactly right. Each one of them has, have, each manufacturer has done their own testing with their product. And as you guys probably already know, you know, tires handle differently. So there may be some difference in the manufacturing process. So it's really important to understand what they want because typically uh, most of the guys that we've worked with or people that were being sued, whether we represented the rider or the dealer or the insurance company or whoever, uh, the, the the accident happened within five to ten miles of the shop, and mm -hmm. that that we found that even when I was working at Bridgestone in the motorcycle department, I found that to be the norm. Is that uh, on a wet surface or something that that, that it happens? No, a hundred percent of them in the dry. One of them really? was in a fairly fairly cool day, which was forty degrees uh, uh, Fahrenheit, but that's really a low temperature. I'm not sure what that is in Celsius, but that's really cool to ride a motorcycle because uh, the reason they're made of rubber, the tires are made of rubber so they conform to the road surface and motorcycle tires don't conform as well at, at 40 degrees and lower. I'm not saying you can't ride, but just be careful. Uh, but they were all in the dry because the tire hasn't been scuffed in. There's no additional uh, friction between the tire and the road surface because it's still... I don't want to use the word slick because there's no chemical additive to get the tire out of the mold. It's just that it's very smooth and the coefficient of drag is really low. Well, what's, what, what would be the, the uh, higher percentage or, or the, the worst culprit? Would it be the fact that the tire wasn't scuffed or would it be the fact that the rider is not used to the way the new tire feels compared to his old tire, her old tire? 
let me make it easy for you, Jim. Yes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's that's oh, good to know. So, so, I mean, it's interesting though because we're no longer dealing with the casing coding, but we're still dealing with the break-in time. You're still dealing with the break-in time, and and like I said, it's scuffing. It's getting used to the new profile. It's it's getting some some heat cycles in to the compound. It, it's it's so many different things. Before it actually did used to be the mold release, which is the substance that was administered onto the tire before it went to the mold, so it wouldn't stick in the mold as you were pulling the tire out. That used to be true, but today that is no longer true. But, but does that mean that, like, because the way I look at it, I'm thinking, okay, well, if, if the casing, if the mold release is no is no longer there, and that was the problem before, why are we still doing the break-in? Is it, is it the whole thing was, was all part of it? And do we now have a shorter break-in because there is no mold release on it? I, I don't know if the break-in is actually shorter because no one has really, actually, really increased their break-in mileage to 200 miles. Uh, it's not that it's just, you know, you mentioned it, I think subconsciously early, it's more reliability thing for the tire manufacturers to try to reduce their applied liability right. because customers didn't understand how to properly break in the tires. So they look at it as a safety aspect more than anything else. And so do I, uh, uh, as as we get deeper, more deeply involved into the legal side of tires and things like that, uh, with with me and my engineers, but uh, it, it's like I said, it's more liability than anything. And if something happens, most people would probably say, or somebody like me would say, "Man, I didn't break it in long enough. Hey, I got to pay to get my parts repaired." But in all these cases that we worked literally just last month. Uh, it, 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 it just, uh, they just didn't, weren't aware of proper break-in. The dealer's trying to get the customer out of there. Uh, in some cases the tire was installed, uh, in the, with the direction of rotation the wrong way, which happens a, a lot. So you need to check that before you leave the shop. The directional arrow is going the wrong, rotating the wrong direction. Uh, they didn't talk to the customer about proper break-in. They never showed the customer uh, the tire label, which has the break-in information on it. It's just a, a, a quite a few things that, unfortunately, the dealers are becoming trained and aware of. But uh, it's such a different world now that you that not only the customer has to protect his or herself, but the dealer has to do some things to protect themselves as well. And I'll give you a quick example. Next time you're at the hardware store and you're buying just a ladder, not even a folding ladder, just a straight ladder, look at how many warning labels are on that ladder. <laughs> there are probably a thousand warning labels. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Everything is like that nowadays. I, I know. But but TJ, so my, my final my final question to you then is because we've just talked about the break-in being a big part of tires still. When you put a new tire on your motorcycle, how do you break it in? You want to. You don't want to do any aggressive maneuvers. No hard braking. No hard acceleration. Accelerating. You don't want to go in at any aggressive lean angles. Just take your time and just ride it like a baby until you've reached that break-in period. And just gradually, uh, when you get home, look at how far you've leaned the tire over. Just gradually over, lean it over a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit at a time until you've reached that break-in. Because as I said, it's also about heat cycle. Mm. Uh, you want to Once you reach that break-in mileage, you should be fine. Even if you hadn't leaned it all the way over 
to where you still got a little bit of chicken strip on there. Uh, still be careful until you get that worn off and just take your time and don't do aggressive maneuvers. And I know it's hard to do because, you know, I ride Ducatis and other, you know, super sport motorcycles. It's hard to not do that because <laughs> uh, you feel you got some fresh rubber. Now, with that said, that's for the street. Now, when you look at a, a, a DOT or non-DOT racing tire, either racing slick or DOT grooved racing tire, that's a different animal altogether than street. So you don't have to use those same procedures on a racing tire. But I'm, sp I'm speaking strictly on the street. That's when you need to take your time. No aggressive braking, no hard throttling, no aggressive high speed on throttle lean angles or anything until you've reached that break in period. Well, this is all great information, and especially with us motorcyclists replacing our tires so often. And of course, that's the whole point of, that's the argument for people who want to ride the dark side is they're sick and tired of buying tires and, and re replacing the tires. And But being that we do, this understanding the break-in procedure and understanding more about our tires, I just think is, is so important for us as riders. And, and you know, Jim, the first time we spoke, you said something that was pretty profound that I didn't think about until even after the first show until now is you you said you had a difficult time finding people who understood tires or who were being honest about what they knew <laughs> uh, and, and I didn't think about that until I, I was sitting here in my office and, and I was thinking about the show that you wanted to do today and that's when I thought about how many cases on for liability we've worked just last month on motorcycle alone and uh, finding someone because there are a lot of people who even on the, uh, the courtroom expert witnesses claim to be tire experts. And I am totally, totally shocked at how many people claim to be experts and they're not. Mm. So thank you. I just want to thank you for doing this show so that we can get the proper information out to all of your listeners and for you dark siders out there. I'm, I'm I don't want to say I'm against dark siding. I'm saying I want you to do what's safe and dark siding isn't safe. But uh, I'm a technical guy. And just through my knowledge of testing and research and develop and those kinds of things uh, through Jim, I'm trying to give you guys information you need to be safe. And just because you see someone doing something, and I, I thought I wanted to throw this in here before we even started, uh, I thought about this. Just because you see someone doing it and they say it works great for them doesn't mean that it's safe to do. I mean, we hear this a lot with travel. People will go through areas that are very volatile, maybe, um, you know, very dangerous areas, and they'll say it was fine. Well, just because you made it doesn't mean it's fine. Doesn't mean it's okay. It just means you made it. TJ, thank you very much for taking the time out to talk to me. Man, your show is so awesome. <laughs> and I, I'm, I've got to get mentally prepared for all the emails and phone calls I'm going to get after this show because there were I, I was just overwhelmed with uh, questions and and people needing to talk to me. Anyone is free to contact me. You can reach me on Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, you know, my email, which is the tire guy at yahoo.com and uh, tire spelled with a Y T H E T Y R E G U Y at yahoo.com. And I promise you, I travel a lot, but you will get a response to every single inquiry. Thanks TJ. Thanks. Have a great day and ride safe. That was TJ Tennant from TJ Tennant and Associates in Nashville, Tennessee. They are tire damage analysis experts. They teach the insurance and law enforcement industries, as well as they do courtroom work with motorcycle accident reconstruction. 
We have a link to them in the show notes and we have his email address if you'd like to contact TJ directly. He's really good about offering himself up to answer questions. So just please be respectful when you're contacting them. They're all in the show notes on this episode at AdventureRiderRadio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it hey i'd like to get you to direct your attention to our website adventureriderradio.com and think about clicking on that support button because yeah we got some advertisements on here but it's built on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work we put a lot of work into these shows and we need your support to help us out drop by the website adventureriderradio.com click on support Anyway, now it's time to get out there and ride your bikes. Thanks very much for listening. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. Glenn Hakestead from strikingviking.net and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey!